Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to cover verses 17 through 30. And we're making the home stretch here. We have 26, 27, and 28. And it ends with Jesus' resurrection and the Great Commission. So uh, we're at chapter 26, beginning in verse 17. And today we're going to examine the Last Supper. And the reason it's called the Last Supper would be because it's what? It's the Last Supper, that's why. It's the, it's, it not only serves as the Passover meal, because it is a Passover meal, but it's duly a farewell meal. Okay? And you're going to see how this becomes a farewell meal and a Passover meal. And here's how we're going to divide our section today. Verses 17 through 19, we're going to see the preparation for the meal. So that's 17 through 19, preparation for the meal. 20 through 25, the eating and the conversation at the meal. Okay. So that's going to be mealtime conversation. And then verses 26 through 30, mealtime teaching, where Jesus gives some instruction. So let's look at preparation for the meal and we'll start at verse 17. Now notice what it says. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus. This answers the question of when. Okay? Notice the when. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This would be Thursday during daytime hours. Okay? The Passover meal, which starts at sundown, is the first major event of a seven-day festival called the Festival or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But this happens during the daytime. So, the same day when the Passover is going to be held, but during daytime hours. Okay? So that's the when. Okay, now look at the end of verse 17. They came to Jesus and they said, Where? Okay, the when is the first day, Thursday during the daytime. Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? <clears throat> now here it just says, uh, it's the disciples who came to him, but according to the Gospel of Luke, it's only two disciples, and it's Peter and John. Okay, So they've come to Jesus, and he has asked them to prepare the Passover meal, and they said, well, where is it going to be held? What's the location? So that answers the where question. And they asked that. So now, he gives the answer. A cryptic answer. Look at verse 18. He said, go into the city, which would be Jerusalem. Because remember, they're in Bethany. So he says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, what makes this answer so intriguing is what Jesus doesn't say and then what Jesus does say. Okay, So notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say in verse 18, go to Mr. Goldberg's house at 100 Main Street. So he doesn't say that. It's a cryptic message. Notice what he says. Go to a certain man. And Luke's Gospel tells us, go find a man in the city that's carrying a water jug on his shoulder. 
which is not something that a man would do during the middle of the day because he was probably out there working in the fields. And so to find a man carrying a water jug, which usually women carry, uh, would have been unusual. So he said, all you need to do is go in the city and start hunting for some man carrying a water jug. Okay? So that's what he tells him according to the Luke's Gospel. And Luke also tells us, and just follow him and go to the house where he goes. That's where you're going to hold this thing. So I think that's very interesting. And notice what else they say to him. They say to him, the teacher says, look at that. Why don't they just say, hey, Jesus wants something. Why this coded or cryptic or nuanced you know, thing, the teacher says. Uh, and then he says, my time is at hand. The teacher says, my time is at hand. What in the world is he talking about? Well, you would say that he's talking about what? His death, right? Uh, you know, the disciples, so that's, they're supposed to tell this guy with a water pot on his hand that the, the teacher says, my time is at hand, which we would assume means my death is at hand. The apostles know that Jesus is going to die. He's told them that before, but they just don't get it. But evidently, this man gets it. See? And then they're to follow this man to his house. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So, it's obvious the man knows what's going on. The disciples don't know what's going on. And evidently, Jesus has prearranged this meeting with this man whom he knows, and the man knows Jesus. Because when they say teacher, the man knows what? He's talking about who? Jesus. So the man knows everything that's going on. He's in on it. There's a prearrangement, but the disciples aren't in on it. Okay? So then, we have the preparation in verse 19. So the disciples, that would be Peter and John, did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now this is a major assignment. We're talking about all afternoon assignments. This means they're going to have to go into the house and they're going to have to set it up. Okay. Uh, if this man hasn't set it up, they have to set it up. They're going to have to uh, get out all the yeast that's in the house if the man hasn't done that. Now, he may have done that, but they, it says they prepared, doesn't it? It doesn't say he prepared, it says they prepared. And that would involve going out and getting a lamb, having the lamb slaughtered, roasting the lamb, going to some market stall, getting vegetables, bitter herbs, uh, making a paste out of apples and nuts and dates and pomegranates, which was part of the Passover meal. They had to get all that together. They don't have any woman helping them with their frying pan, Jim Bray said. Um, they have to go out and get wine. There's going to be four glasses of wine that's going to be drunk at this meal by the twelve apostles and Jesus. That's 13 times four. So that's 52 glasses of wine. And they're assuming they have more than an ounce in the glass. We're dealing with a big jug of wine. They have to go out and do that. Then they have to cut the wine. They have to mix it with water, probably two to three parts water to one part wine, so they have to have all these kinds of containers. And uh, then they have to break, bake the unleavened bread, which is like matzah today, if you've ever seen matzah in the, in the store. So all this is going to take all afternoon. 
Okay? So now it's all prepared. And now we come to the eating of the meal and the meal conversation in verse 20. It says, so when evening came, sundown arrives. Look what Jesus did. He sat down with the twelve. Now here we discover the nature of the meal. Uh, the word there, sat down, in the Greek, means he reclined. This is a formal banquet. This takes the form of what we call a Greco-Roman banquet, which is a reclining banquet uh, for about 12 people, and it involved a horseshoe table, like this, with cushions on it all the way around, and uh, they would lean on their left elbow, and that's how they would eat. There's a little table lower, and that's where the food would be, and they would pick it up and they would eat. So this is a formal banquet. It's going to be divided into a meal, and then after the meal, there are going to be some activities and discussions and teachings and things like that. This is a very formal meal. It's going to be a Passover meal, but it's also going to be his farewell meal. So, that's what they're doing. By the way, no one knows the location of this meal except Peter and John. The other disciples have no idea where it is. Jesus leads them there. Now, why does Jesus have why all this secrecy? Because he wants this meal to be private. And guess what? Judas has already sold him down the river, hasn't he? If Judas knows where this meal is in the city, guess what he would do? He'd go tell the authorities they ended up arresting Jesus. So Jesus doesn't want anybody to know where that meal is. There's never an indication that after Peter and John finish preparing for the meal that they come back. They just stay there and they wait. And Jesus brings the other ten there. Because he has certain things that he wants to accomplish before he ends up dying. And he wants to accomplish that at this meal setting where he's going to teach them certain things. And he doesn't want Judas to rat on him before it's his time. So now the apostles come there and they come to this secret location and it has to be sort of mysterious. Where are we going, Jesus? Well, we're going to eat the Passover. Where is it? Well, you'll see when we get there. So there's sort of a spirit of anticipation, isn't there? I think there would be. And you can just see old Judas trying to figure out where it could be. He doesn't until he gets there. And now, they're, now they're reclining. So notice it says in verse 21, as they were eating, so they've been eating for a while, he suddenly blurts something out. He said, oh, by the way, let me tell you something. I say to you, verse 21, one of you will betray me. Wow, what a shocking announcement that is. Um, I imagine some of them just get a pit in their stomach. Stop eating all of a sudden. And notice their reaction. In verse 22 it says, they were exceedingly sorry. We've been with you for three years. We're not going to do that. See, they're just shocked. So each one began to say to him in verse 22, Lord, is it I? Hoping for a negative answer. Oh, no, it's not you, Peter. Don't worry about it. Is it us? Each one began. Not Judas. But the other 11 asked the question, is it I? Hoping that Jesus will say, oh, no, it's not you. But he doesn't say that. Very interesting. 
Look what he says. Verse 23. He says, It's he who dipped his finger with me in the dish. He's the one who will betray me. Now, if you talk about a vague answer, it's the guy who's getting that piece of matzah and he's putting it in that paste and eating it. That's the one who will betray. Everyone's done that. What are you talking about? Be like going to a Mexican restaurant and whoever dips in the hot sauce is the one who's going to betray me. Everybody's dipping in the hot sauce. What are you talking about? Sort of vague. It's a non-answer. But if you go to John's Gospel, he lets you in on a secret conversation. There's only one other person hears. It's very interesting. I thought you'd have fun turning there. So turn over to John 13. And uh, just show you this little passage, which is very uh, interesting. John 13. This is John's version of that Last Supper. And if you look down at verse 14, uh, verse 24, this is John 13, 24, it says that Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask him, who it was of whom he spoke. Who are you talking about? When well, he said, you know, somebody's going to end up betraying me. So Simon Peter said, well, well who's it going to be? And he doesn't say that out loud. It's not like a big, well, who is it, Jesus? Now watch. Verse 25. Then Jesus leaning back, or then leaning back on Jesus' breast. Remember, they're reclining. And here's this guy leaning on Jesus' breast. Look at this. We don't know if this is Peter or John, but look at it. He said to him, Lord, look, who is it? He's leaning back. Look, whispering in Jesus' ear, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And then John says, having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So that one disciple of Jesus <laughs> know who it is. See? But in the Matthew passage, we don't have that. Jesus just says, whoever dips. Uh, why does John have that and Matthew doesn't have it? Because it's, it wasn't whispered in Matthew's ear. He may not even know about this conversation as far as we know. This was a private, secret conversation. But John tells us about it. So uh, he says, whoever dips. So now I just go back to Matthew chapter 26, and look down at verse 24. <clears throat> and then he says this, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it was written of him. He's going to be betrayed, he's going to die just as it was written of him. Written where? In the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets predicted Messiah would die. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, Psalm 22, and so forth. This is God's plan. God has always planned that Messiah would die. This is not plan B. This is plan A to Z. Okay? This is the only plan. Okay? And he goes on to say in verse 24, But woe to the man, that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be good for him, for that man, if he had not been born. So even though God's plan is that Jesus will be betrayed and crucified, that's all part of God's plan. He holds Judas Iscariot responsible 
and accountable for betraying Jesus. It's one of the great conundrums in the Bible is that God has a plan and then someone comes along and helps God fulfill that plan like Judas and then God holds Judas responsible. God doesn't take the responsibility alone. That's just like God said to Israel. He said, you know, if you're obedient to me, things are going to go well, you're going to be blessed. But if you don't, you're going to end up in captivity. They don't. They end up in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. That's God's plan. But then guess what? God holds Babylon responsible for oppressing Israel. It's a strange thing, isn't it? And uh, that's just the two sides. There's the divine side and the human side, and we can't totally reconcile them. But he says it would be better if that man hadn't even been born. And then Judas chimes in. Ah, the other 11 have already said, is it I? Now Judas is the last one to chime in. I guess he wanted to see when they said, is it I? People said, oh yeah, Thaddeus, it's you. And Judas was like, ah, I got away with murder. But Jesus doesn't respond like that. And so finally in verse 25 he said, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Jesus responded, you said it. Or, that's your words, not mine. I didn't say it was good. But you said it. And so, Judas, in a sense, is condemned by his own words. And we know from other passages, at this point, Judas goes out he leaves. He goes out on the pretense that he's going to go help some poor people. But he's running straight to the high priest and to the powers that be. So that is the conversation that goes on. It's sort of a shocking moment in the middle of this. And now we have the teaching that comes into play in verse 26. The mealtime teaching. It says, and as they were eating, notice they're still eating. This is a long period of time. By the way, this uh, when he said somebody's going to betray me and they started asking him questions, that didn't just happen in five seconds. You can imagine the conversations that went on between who in the world among us could betray Jesus. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's that, you know, you know Peter, he'd never been trusted anyway. Maybe it's Peter. You can just see that going on. This is taking some time. So in verse 26, they're still eating. And then look what Jesus does. Some point in the meal, he took the bread, blessed it, and he broke it. Now, uh, what are they eating at this point? <clears throat> at this point, they're eating the lamb, they're eating the vegetables, they're eating the bitter herbs, they're dipping the bitter herbs, they're drinking some wine, all these kinds of things, as they were eating. They're still eating. By the way, wine is first mentioned in the Passover feast, in 150 B.C. First time wine is ever mentioned in conjunction with the Passover. 150 B.C. In the book of Jubilees. Which is not a Bible book, but it's a book that was written back then. Also in 150, the Jews began to eat the Passover in their homes. There was a time that the Jews had to eat the Passover in the temple. That was all changed. The whole history of the Passover was very interesting. And so they're in this guy's home and they're still eating and they're eating the lamb and they're drinking the wine and all this kind of stuff. And then in the middle of verse 26 it says, and he gave it, he gave that bread 
to the disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. What bread did he give to the disciples? The unleavened bread. Uh, the 12 by 12 cracker, you know, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that has no yeast in it. The matzah. He gives that bread to them. And in the Passover feast, the unleavened bread represented the bread of affliction, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, because the Jews were afflicted by the Egyptians, and the Egyptians' whips would hit their backs. And so when you go out and buy matzah today, you'll find a cracker about that size, and you'll see these stripes on the cracker, which represents the whips of their Egyptian masters. And he gives them this bread, and this bread is symbolic of his body, which he says, which is being afflicted. Okay? So that's what he says there in verse 26. He says, this is, uh, he gave the disciples, he said, take, eat, this is my body. Okay? So the body, the, the bread, is a metaphor or symbolic of his body. Not literally his body, because his body is on the couch, right? So, but it's symbolic of his body. And then, verse 27, he took the cup. And we know from the Apostle Paul, reflecting back on the Lord's Supper, after the entire meal was over, he takes the cup. And so he breaks the bread in the middle of the meal, takes the cup at the end of the meal, after the meal part portion is over, and he gave them the cup. And he gave thanks. So here's this one single cup of wine. And he gave it to them, he passed it around, and he said, drink from it, all of you. So there's this common cup. We know that this is the third of four cups in the Passover feast. It's called the cup of blessing. And he says, just drink it all. Okay. Now what's the rationale for giving them this cup and giving it symbolic meaning? Well, look at verse 28. For this is my blood. This represents my blood of the new covenant. Contracts and covenants in the Old Testament were sealed by a blood sacrifice. And Jesus says, this cup of wine is symbolic of my blood, which I am going to seal a covenant with the nation of Israel. And he calls it this new covenant. And then he says this at the end of verse 28, which is shed for many. All those that enter into the covenant, it will apply to them for the remission of sins. And so... Not everybody is going to join the covenant, but there will be a remnant of Jews that join the covenant. And the way you recognize that you were part of that covenant, in this case, would be to take the cup and drink it. Say, I'm entering into that covenant with you. That was a symbolic act. Judas doesn't drink it. He's not in the covenant. So Christ's death will not affect him. He will be held responsible for his sins. Every time we take the Lord's Supper and we drink from the cup, we are affirming that we're part of God's covenant. We enter into a covenant with him. And so it includes not only Jews, which were only Jews here, but eventually Gentiles, which most of us in this room are. So uh, that's really interesting. So the bread and the wine he gives symbolic meaning. He doesn't mention anything about the lamb, which is very interesting you think that would be what he would talk about. Because it was the lamb that was slaughtered in the original Exodus, and its blood was smeared on 
the doorpost of the house, he does not mention bread, um, does not mention the lamb at all. He takes what seems to be insignificant things and he gives them symbolic meaning. Very interesting. Please say this for me. Now look at verse 29. What I say to you, now watch this. This is a very interesting statement. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. So this is Jesus' last Passover meal. He realizes he will eat the Passover meal and drink the cup at another time. It's going to be in the future, but he knows he must die first and be resurrected. He doesn't expect to be eating with them next year at the Passover feast. Now they might be thinking, well, he's going to bring in the kingdom right away, right after he dies and after he's resurrected. In fact, I'm convinced that after Jesus did die and he was resurrected, they were still expecting him to set up the kingdom right there on Israel because in Israel, because in Acts 1-3, they say to Jesus, now this is Jesus right before he ascends into heaven. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel this time? They're expecting it to happen immediately. But we know it hasn't happened like that. And the next time Jesus drinks from the cup, he will be in the kingdom of God. Now it's very possible, and many commentators say this, it's very possible that when Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to them to eat, he doesn't eat that piece of bread himself. And it's very possible from this cup, he passes the cup around, but he doesn't drink from the cup himself. Doesn't say there that he drinks from it, does it? He doesn't say this. But I say to you, I will not drink again this fruit, does it? He said, I won't drink any of this fruit until the kingdom comes. So it's very possible Jesus didn't even drink from the cup and eat from the bread, uh, but he will when the new kingdom comes. And we don't know that for sure, but that's just some of the crazy things that commentators say. Now look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's where he had taught them about the destruction of the temple just a few days before. Now, this hymn that they sing is Psalm 115 to 118. Uh, they've had a meal. Uh, they passed the cup around, and then they've had some activity, which we don't, which Matthew doesn't talk about. He doesn't talk about any of the discussions and activities that go on after that point. John's Gospel does talk about it. John spends four chapters talking about what goes on after this cup is passed around. Matthew doesn't do it. He just said, they sang a hymn, and then they left for the garden, uh, the Mount of Olives, which, of course, Jesus then goes into the inner part of the Mount of Olives, and he goes into what we call the Garden of Gethsemane. So, the Passover feast that Jesus... This last Passover feast that Jesus had with his disciples is the basis for our Lord's Supper. But something has happened to it. We no longer eat the meal. We have divested the Lord's Supper of the Supper. What we have done is we've gotten it down to just a piece of cracker and a little cup of grape juice. But there's no supper anymore. It takes you about five minutes to do this thing now. That was a four-hour meal and activities. And so now what we have done is we've just extrapolated the bread and the wine from the meal itself 
And that's what we're doing. When did that change, by the way? When did they stop eating a full meal? Second century. Because Rome got on them. They didn't want them to be meeting for four hours. And Rome stopped them from having that meal. And so they had to go to the symbolic thing that's been going on ever since. But that's not how it was done in the New Testament. A lot of churches are discovering that. And they're reinstituting a full meal. And uh, personally, I like that. In fact, I remember Dr. Criswell once said that he wanted to build a great, uh, not a center, but it was a banquet hall where you'd have a whole meal with the whole church. And he based it on that right there. So I remember that. I remember reading it somewhere. So I got on the website and found Dr. Criswell's sermon. First week in January, 1970, where he lays out his big plan for the year. You know how he used to do that? Yeah. And listen what he said. What about building a great dining hall? Over here in this building, across the street on San Jacinto, the first three floors are to be a great dining hall. That's the old Criswell building. He wanted it gutted in the f all three floors to be a great dining hall which will be the very center of the activities of the program of this church. And then he says, in order to have a beautiful hall, the ceiling has to be high. You weren't talking about Coleman Hall. Yeah. The ceiling has to be high. If the ceiling's low, when you walk into a great hall, you feel as though you're in a gun barrel. And the thing's going to fall on your head. The ceiling has to be high for it to look nice. Why waste all that cubic feet of air up there. Why don't we put a mezzanine around it? Put a mezzanine all the way around. Then the people can be seated on the floor and they can be seated up there in the mezzanine and you can increase the capacity of your hall by a third at least. And I have ecclesiastical reasons for making a great big dining hall <laughs> expansive and impressive. Reason number one, as I study the Word of God, it is easy especially against the background of secular history. And Christian centuries, it says, as I study the Word of God, it's easy to recreate the congregations of the Lord back there in the first Christian centuries. They called them koinonia, translated communions, translated fellowships. And in the New Testament, you'll find a word, and I begin to see it once in a while in English now, agape. And agape, the word in the New Testament, was the word of the early church for the love feast. When the church came together in the ancient day after Christ, they broke bread together, and the pastor and the people shared a common meal. I don't think we can ever improve upon the wisdom of God Almighty. A church is a koinonia. He wanted to have this great big feast. He wanted to build this tremendous banquet hall. But he never came off. He had resistance. Who remembers that? Anybody remember that? Anybody? Was the resistance over money? Probably. Always over money. Yeah. So here we see that Dr. Criswell, by the way, this was, what did I say year, year that was? 1970. He was so far before his time. Because it's only been in the last 15 to 20 years that major New Testament scholars have rediscovered the way the early church met for their Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper wasn't something they added on to the worship service. The Lord's Supper was the worship service. 
So you'd all sit around the table and you would eat and you would lift up the cup and you'd have all kinds of ministry opportunities that second hour and a half in that great banquet hall. And it's, you know, that's what I deal with. I'm giving two papers this year at the Society of Biblical Literature, which is a major New Testament uh, conference. And I'm dealing with, right with this subject. That's what my dissertation was on. Subversive Meals, that book over there. An examination, analysis of the Lord's Supper under Roman domination in the first century. Hey, Dr. Criswell saw that in 1970. It's one of the most amazing things. Now, we have a center stage with the dining area, but that's different. We just You're not talking about just going and having a meal with, like on Wednesday nights for, before worship. You know, he meant this was going to be the worship. He had this in his mind, if you could imagine such a thing. And so that was the last supper that Jesus gave. And then the Apostle Paul says, when you come together, he says to his church at Corinth, when you come together to eat, when you come together to eat, that was the purpose that they came together. They came together to eat. And then he gave all these instructions of how they were to eat. The rich people weren't, go, weren't to go in and eat all the food up and leave the poor people with nothing. They were all to share. And this was going to be an expression of how the church was to be throughout eternity. So this is the Lord's Supper. They leave, they sing their hymn, and then they go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Next week, we'll see how Judas shows up with the army to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, we thank you for a passage that We've read a thousand times, but it has so much information in it. We just look at it through clear eyes, and we look at it fresh and anew. Oh, Lord, help us to realize that we have so far strayed from what worship was like in Bible times. The early church was more like a supper club than like we have in churches today. It met around tables eventually, and where everyone got together and shared and were equal and had a great time of joy. And Lord, that's what we should be doing. We should be making sure our heart is right and we worship. We should be having a great time of joy. Oh Lord, help us to study your word, help us to implement your word, put it to practice, especially in our lives, with our families, around our own supper tables. Help us to live like Christians. Help us to, to act like Christians in Christ's name. Wow.